Hope Ottawa. Welcome. All right. Good evening. Greetings from Hope Oakville. It's, uh, it's nice to be here with you in our nation's capital. I like never come here, so this is great. It's so cool to be here, even if it's just for a few hours. It's like, check that off the bucket list. So um, you're like, we do that all the time. We live here, so... It's not that cool. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 12. And if you need a Bible, you can go ahead and put your hand up and someone from the back will come and hand you one that if you do not own one, it becomes yours for as long as you possess it. So, um, and if you're grabbing one of those Bibles, you can open it to page 552. I'll just be honest with you. I really have nothing to say to you apart from God's word tonight. So you definitely need God's word open in front of you. We are going to just unpack a text that uh, some of you will be familiar with. Hopefully, um, many of you will be, but hopefully uh, the Lord will use it in your life to encourage you again. But before we do, uh, let me just pray, all right? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. God, that we are not in this life alone to try and figure out how to do life, but God, you have given us each other, and more importantly than the church even, you have given us your word, that you reveal yourself to us. And so, Lord, right now, I just ask and pray that you would speak to this church through your word, and you would do it by your spirit. God, I pray that this wouldn't be about some guest speaker or some illustration or any of those things, but it would just be you, Lord, that you would communicate truth that you have for your followers here tonight in such a way that would be so encouraging to them and you would get glory from it. And so all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, the passage that we're going to be in tonight is all about how we ought to use our time. Now you're like, okay, that makes sense that we need to be thoughtful about how we use our time. Uh, Warren Wearsby, the great scholar, he said, what we believe helps us determine how we behave. And we must translate our learning into living to show in our daily lives that we trust God. Our passage that we're going to be in tonight is all about, and if you want to like make a little side note, if you're one of these people who write all sorts of things down, relational theology. Tonight we're learning about relational theology, our relationship with God, and then in turn how that impacts our relationship with others. Because if you have a good or a growing relationship with God in heaven, you should have a good and increasingly better and more rightly as defined and dictated by God relationship with others. But that doesn't come easily. That takes some work. And so the title of tonight's message is this, God wants all of you all of the time. God wants all of you all of the time. God is loving. He is perfect. He has a full plan for your lives. Amen? Amen. Okay, so if we all believe that, then we need to know what his full plan for us is. And he tells us in his word, God's perfect plan for us is more often about worship, service, and obedience, though, than we would like to admit. Sometimes when we're looking for what's God's plan for my life, we want it to be this, like, Route and this direction, and at this junction, you're going to go this way, and at this junction, you're going to go this way. But more often than not, what God reveals in His Word is that He wants and is most concerned about our worship and our service and our obedience to Him. See, the key in Scripture that you see over and over again is not how do we go to get things from God, but how do we give of ourselves more completely to God? Because in doing that, we are then living out the call that He has put on each of our lives. And so he wants all of you all of the time. He wants all of me all of the time. Now, 
I don't want you to be confused that this is a message that somebody asked me to preach to get you to do something at the end, okay? I think that that's important that you understand. This passage that we're going to look at, it does have some advice for how we ought to relate to one another with this relational theology, and so it will be helpful in that terms, but it's not a do this and this functioning religious community will go well, all right? However, if you believe these things, and the Lord impresses these things upon your heart, well, then it's going to change you. Because if we were to just go out of here and say, all right, well, here are the things that now I need to check off the list to make God be happy with me, that's not going to be pleasing to him. He doesn't want just obedience without belief. He wants your obedience to come from belief, because otherwise all you're doing is just this bitter acting, and that's not pleasing to the Lord at all. And so, Romans 12, let me read the first couple verses, and then we'll unpack them, and then we'll read a few more, okay? Romans 12, verse 1, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, let's go back to the beginning there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and just in case anyone who is here is feeling a little bit left out, you can see there's probably a footnote in your Bible there that says brothers and sisters. Love that Paul uses that word there, just to make sure all the ladies who love Jesus in the house are encouraged in that way. Paul loves you, Jesus loves you, all right? Let's like, don't, don't be confused there. And, and this isn't one of those ones where like the pastor's trying to make it. No, like there's a footnote there. The word is brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Now, he's making this appeal. If you notice there, this appeal, this like urgent earning, ur- this, this um, urgent urging, and it's based off of, now he says, look at the verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So because of what I've said, therefore, I'm appealing to you about something else. Well, what has he said? Well, what he's referring to is everything that he's unpacked in the book of Romans so far. So chapters 1 through 11. Let's go through that now. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We don't have time for that tonight. But let me just give you a quick flyby because what he has been doing is he has been unpacking the work of Jesus. And so a few verses. I just picked three although there's so many in the book of Romans we could have looked at. Just three that are going to come up on the screen just to help you see the unpacking mercies of God. Romans 3.20, by the work of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul starts off and he makes this argument that none of you can earn your salvation. There's no way for you to fix your problem with God. From there, he jumps into unpacking the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, and he gets to Romans 5, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can be saved. You can't save you, but Jesus can save you. And then he says this, and here's another therefore. So, you know, we've got a therefore in Romans 12, a therefore in Romans 8, a therefore in Romans 5. He's building along here, right? Through Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you can't save you. Jesus can save you. And if he has saved you, there is no condemnation for you. Now he gets to Romans 12, and he says, if you understand all of that, you are beginning to understand the mercies of God. And that should translate into your lives. Now, I remember when I was younger, and there's lots of kids in the room right now, which is awesome, I remember preachers getting up and saying words and not knowing what they meant, as if I'm supposed to know what they meant. 
And so I want to just define some of these words right now. I want to define the word mercy. The word mercy literally means to withhold deserved wrath. Remember when you were a kid and you'd do those like mercy fights with people where you grab their hands and you like squeeze and you're trying to break the other person's hands off? It's like the craziest competition that we would do. And when they can't, they say mercy. Now they deserve your wrath or you deserve their wrath, right? But you say mercy, please stop. Like I, I deserve this. Okay, so pause for a second and just think about the mercy of God. That while we were yet sinners, he sends his son Jesus to die for us. You and I, rightly, justly, before perfect, holy God, deserving eternal consequences, condemnation, and separation from God. But for the mercy, the withholding of wrath through the sending of his son Jesus, who willingly takes our place, who is the substitute for us, that we can know God and we can have peace. That's the gospel. And brothers and sisters, if you're here tonight and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, that can be yours tonight. You can have that hope. You can have that forgiveness. And we haven't even got to point one yet. But if you know that, that should then, as Paul's saying here, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, some things should happen in your life. Because God wants all of you all of the time. So a few things that should happen. Here's the first one. God's mercy leads me to holy worship. God's mercy leads me to holy worship. Verse 1 there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he's saying, I'm, I'm calling out to you. Now here's what he says. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now let's just pause at the very end of that verse there. It says spiritual worship. That's an interesting phrase. We don't usually use that very often. What is that all about? Spiritual worship is re referring to genuine, spirit-led, heartfelt worship. This is not ceremonial. This is not checking a box. This is not dry and liturgical with no emotion and no passion and no conviction. This is genuine stirring in you. This is what the Lord wants from us. And so Paul says to present your body as a living sacrifice. That's a strange picture. A living sacrifice. That word living means perpetual. It means to be ongoing, to be continuing. But the problem with a living sacrifice is that it can easily get distracted. The problem with a living sacrifice is it has the potential to crawl off the altar. And so Paul's saying that we need to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, an ongoing, a perpetual sacrifice, coming to the Lord and giving of ourselves to him and for his glory. Why? It goes back to the very beginning of the verse, because of the mercy of God. The mercy of God, the undeserved saving and preventing of separation should lead us then in body and soul to live lives. Now see what he says there, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. God's looking for a holy and acceptable worship. He's looking for us to live morally upright and pure before him. Rebelling from sin. You're like, rebelling from sin? Yeah, because the world is pulling you to sin, and so you rebel against that and go, no, I'm going to go the Lord's way. I'm going to let the mercy of God be what leads me. See, so often when we think about God's love and God's mercy and his care for us, we think about the saving work that Jesus does for me, that I have this eternal security, and we forget that it's not just about some moment in the future. God didn't just save you and I for some future moment, but God wants you in the future and now. He wants all of us 
all of the time. The problem is, if you're anything like me, is sometimes we just seem to give God our leftovers. And we don't give him our first and our best. And so what we, what we do is we kind of wake up and we're like, well, I don't know if I've got time to be with the Lord this morning. I don't know if I have time to pray as if we can survive life without it. Or you know what? I just, I, I can't serve at the church. I can't be involved in the community that God has called me to. And so we fail to serve and give and worship in the way that God is calling us to as a living sacrifice. And sadly, though, some of us, we even do those things. We serve and, and we give and we worship, but we do it with the wrong attitudes. And we come with, with these poor attitudes and these poor motivations. Listen, from the beginning, God wants our faithful worship. And he doesn't want us to just worship him so that we can somehow think we've checked a box and that now we've made him pleased with us because it doesn't work like that. He wants us to reflect on his goodness and his kindness and because of the mercies of God then live lives that are completely different. And so a question that I have for you is this. Does God's mercy motivate you? Is the gospel the greatest driving force in your life? Now, I'm not saying that like providing for your family and loving your kids and even taking care of yourself shouldn't be important. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying and what I believe God's word is saying to us over and over again is that the influence of the gospel on our lives needs to be the biggest and the greatest thing in our lives. But how many times do we get like halfway through the day and if we're honest, We haven't sat down and thought about the mercy of God. The mercy of God is not the driving factor in our day. No wonder we wander off into sin. No wonder we feel discouraged and weak spiritually. No wonder we feel disconnected sometimes, lacking joy and peace. Because we aren't living life the way that God has called us to. No wonder sometimes we feel far from God. But as a living sacrifice, we've crawled off the altar. And we're no longer anywhere close to where we should be. So maybe you're thinking, okay... If I'm going to live this life led by the mercy of God, of worship, what does that look like? I would say it looks like two things. The first thing is a continuing repentance. We have to be people who are willfully repentant, willfully recognizing, God, I'm not worshiping you. I'm not putting you first. You are not my number one priority. The mercy of God is not leading me, and I am sorry and repent of that and be willing to ask God to say, God, would you show me what it is in my life that's leading me that I can turn away from that and turn to you? So repentance, but then also, then it's not, it's not just enough to be like, okay, I'm going this way, but I need to repent and I need to turn to the Lord. You actually then have to begin to pursue the Lord. So you can't just say, okay, I see what the sin in my life is that's not pleasing to God, and so it needs to change. I recognize that. He doesn't want you to stay over here. He wants you then to pursue and to go after him. You're like, okay, well, do you have a Bible verse for that? Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we see Paul, he's talking about this repentance and this pursuit, but all of that has to do with this is what God's will is for your life. And so this is the second point, if you want to write it down. God's mercy leads me to his will. God's mercy will lead me to his will. It will lead me to discerning what does God want in my life. So he died, he rose, he justified, he saved us from sin that we may then live for him. He doesn't want us, look what it says there, do not be conformed to this world. That word conform meaning increasingly similar. We should be increasingly 
dissimilar to the world as followers of Jesus Christ. And that word world is not just talking about culture around us, but specifically referring to sin, the habitual sinful practices of our world. We're not to grow similar to the world, but we are to, look what it says there, be transformed. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, not becoming more like the world. If the world controls your thinking, you are a conformer. If God controls your thinking, you are a transformer. And I don't mean like the robot aliens. I mean like the Romans 12 kind of transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole thing is about, us becoming more like Jesus. This is what God wants in our lives. Now, if you go through the whole verse, it's all getting to this, that we would discern and be able to walk and live in the will of God. Because God wants all of you, all of the time, full on for him. So how does this all connect together? Well, if I understand that I'm not supposed to be like the world, but I'm supposed to be like him, the more that I become like him and the more that I walk in obedience to him, the more I understand how good it is his plan for me. Now, have you ever been asked to do something that you, you don't understand why and so you get super frustrated about it? I've had this so many times in my life, <laughs> more than I'd like to count, right? Where I just don't willingly submit to authority and I like push back and I'm like, I don't understand. I have four kids, um, the two older ones, I don't have this problem with them so much anymore, but the two younger ones, sometimes it's like we're trying to get them ready for bed. They're not getting ready for bed very quickly. And now it's like, all right, just brush your teeth and get into your room. And they're like, why? <laughs> and it's, it's so frustrating, right? Because it's like, listen, you should have been in bed 20 minutes ago. I don't have time to explain to you oral hygiene. We can Google it tomorrow. But you need to trust your dad, or you need to trust your mom, and you need to just brush your teeth, right? Okay, we're the exact same way. But more important than our oral hygiene and greater than the love of an earthly parent is God's love for us where sometimes he's saying, listen, even if I explained it all to you, you wouldn't comprehend it all. But here's how I want you to live. This is what's going to be best. This is what's going to be most pleasing and honoring, what's going to protect you from sin, what's going to protect you from hurt and heartache and live honoring me. But so often we just resist that, right? Just like little children. We say, why, 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 God, why? And we resist the mercy of God. If we have, like the, the believers in Rome, who Paul is writing to you, if we have understood the mercies of God, we are different people. A few verses are going to come up on the screen. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is now in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.2. Set your mind then on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. We should be changing. Galatians 1.4, he gave himself for our sin to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father. The church must stand out from the world as a demonstration of God's intention for the human race. We cannot conform to this world. We must be transformed. Now, I intentionally skipped over the very middle of verse 2. And it says there, by the renewal of your mind. Do you see that there? By the renewal of your mind? Because this is the key. This is the key for us to be continually and ongoingly transformed. It's the renewal of our mind. I recently heard a sermon by Pastor Jim Cimbala, so I'm not taking the credit for any of this, but it was from 2 Corinthians 4.16, and in 2 Corinthians 4.16, it talks about daily renewing your mind. 
And he put four things before the people in the sermon that I'm going to share with you. Four things, if we're going to be people who are led by God's mercy and walk in his will, four things that we need to do to renew our mind day by day. And I think they're going to come up on the screen. Are they coming up? We can put them up. All right. First one is this. you got to thank Jesus. Every day you got to thank Jesus. You're like, thank Jesus? Just like, Jesus? That's all i got? No, it's more than that. It's, it's not just think about that he was a person and that he is God's son, but think about his love and his mercy and his care for you. And that while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. And so you think Jesus. When do you think Jesus? All day, every day. When your eyes open, before you pull the blankets off, before you even hit the snooze button, before your feet hit that cold floor, you think Jesus. You think Jesus when you get up. You think Jesus when you eat. You think Jesus in the shower. You think Jesus when you're getting dressed. Let me tell you, the more you think Jesus, the more it's going to change your day. So you start thinking Jesus. You think Jesus. Then you listen to Jesus. God has something to tell you. He wants to communicate to you. He did not leave this book for us to ignore. He wants to communicate to us. The question is, will we listen? So often we're like, well, I really wish God would communicate to me what he wants me to do with my life. But we neglect to read the book? What's wrong with us? And I've done this too, right? So I'm not like throwing shade on you and not on me, right? We do this sometimes. And we need to go and intentionally and actively pursue, God, what do you want to say to me? So it's not just like, oh, did I do my Bible reading so I can check off, you know, that I did it and I can tell my group that, yeah, I read my Bible this week? Or do we get in God's word actively, intentionally, thinking about Jesus and pursuing the Lord in such a way where we're like, God, I need you to teach me something. I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me because I can't do this on my own. We got to think Jesus. We got to listen to Jesus. Then we got to talk to Jesus. We got to talk to Jesus. If you think about how many times throughout our days you get to the end of the day and you're like, man, if God had helped me in that moment, oh man, if the Lord had come through in that moment, did we even ask him? Did we? That old hymn that talks about um, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? Oh, because we do not carry everything to him in prayer. So often we go through life and we go through the day and the Lord's like, I'm right here. I love you. And we're just like living sacrifices, crawling off the altar, getting as far away from him as we can. And he's like, come back and talk to me. I care. I want to listen. We should get to a place where if people could hear what's going on inside our head, they'd think we're insane. Because there's this constant conversation going on with us and the Lord. Lord, I'm about to drive down the street right now, and I don't know what's going to be down there. You're like, really? Even driving down the street? I drove down some of your roads. Listen, there's potholes everywhere, all right? Not just, I know, and I didn't mean everywhere in Ottawa. I mean everywhere in Canada, all right? But whether it's driving down a road, whether it's you're about to open your email, and Lord, I don't know what I'm going to get. You're going into work. You have no clue the conversation you're about to go into. All the time, we should be calling out to the Lord. I didn't mean to burn Ottawa like that. <laughs> Oops. All right. Sorry, Ray. Um, Think Jesus, listen to Jesus, talk to Jesus. Fourthly, we need to praise Jesus. We need to make it a practice in our lives that we are praising the Lord, reminding ourselves, as I've tried to do before you right now, in talking about the mercy of God, we sing songs about the love of Jesus to store it up in our hearts, to remind us of all that he has done. So if God's mercy is leading us in such a way that we are then 
increasingly living lives of worship to him that are seeking to do his will, it's going to change things. And so this is the beginning of relational theology. This is us and God so far. All of this because of the mercy of God. Now, Paul's about to make a switch, and he's about to say, okay, because of the mercy of God, because of your relationship with God, which he's covered in 11 chapters so far, he kind of sums up in those two verses, and now he begins a transition in the whole book of Romans to say, now here is how you should begin to interact with other people. And now we're only going to look at a few of these verses, but let me read verses 3 through 5 to start. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So now he's transitioning to this whole conversation, not just about our relationship with God, but now our relationship with others. Now I want you to also notice this. He started in verse 1 and he said, I appeal to you by the mercies. And then if you notice, all the Bible scholars in the room, you pick this up right away. Now he says in verse 3, by the grace of God. So now he's making an active transition that I'm no longer talking about the withholding of what you deserve. I am talking about grace now. And so it's appropriate that we define grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So because of what you had withheld from you, here's how you ought to live. Now because of what you've been given... He begins to say, here's how you should live. So because of grace, there's some things that we should do. The first one there in verse 3 is this. We should have some sort of humble evaluation of ourselves. This is point number three. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. All of this because of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God. Now, it says there that we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Meaning that there is a level of how high you should think of yourself, which is kind of weird, right? Like, I'm supposed to think of myself as like a certain level? Yeah, but it's probably lower than whatever you think it is. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee you that it is lower than whatever you and I think of it is. And the problem is because so often we become, as we crawl off the altar of living sacrifice of perpetual worship to God, we crawl onto the altar of self. And we begin to worship self. And what the Lord is saying to us through his word here is that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, but with sober judgment, suggesting that we are in some way delusional about how great and wonderful we are, we need to care more about what he cares about, service and help and encouragement and the growth of others. That's what the rest of this, these few verses that we're going to look at are all about. Now, this is connected to the measure of our faith. Did you see that there? Now, that's an interesting thing, because we don't often think about the measure of our faith, but what Paul is getting at is, in our understanding, in your increased understanding of the grace of God, the more you understand the mercy of God, what's been withheld, and the more you understand your grace, the grace that God has given you, this is this, is this growing up that begins to happen. This is according to the measure of faith that's been given to you. And so, the more you understand the mercy, and the more you understand the grace, the better you understand yourself. And the more accurate, humble evaluation you have of yourself. But so often we don't do this, right? We act more like my eight-year-old the other day when I asked him to put the dishes away from the dishwasher. And he was trying to put things on shelves that he just can't reach. 
and then he's trying to climb on the counter to reach shelves he just can't reach. And it's like, son, you're going to hurt yourself and break stuff. It's like, you need to just stop, right? But we do this sometimes. And we think of ourselves sometimes when it comes to serving the Lord or being used by God as some sort of spiritual giants. And we're like, why isn't the Lord using me? I'm awesome. I'm so faithful. I'm so mighty and so wise. Why is And the Lord's looking at us and is like, really? You think that I need you? So what do we do? Well, Paul is encouraging us here to have a, a proper understanding of ourselves. One veteran pastor wrote this, this. Nothing causes more damage in a local church than either a believer who overrates himself or herself and tries to perform a ministry that they cannot do, or the opposite when people undervalue themselves and do little or nothing. Both are wrong and not pleasing to the Lord. So the question is, as your relational theology and understanding who God is grows, and then you begin to understand how you are to interact with God's people, the question comes into, are you doing what the Lord is calling you to do? Now that might mean not doing what you want to do, because the Lord hasn't called you to that yet. But it might mean doing more than you're currently doing, because he is calling you to something. There are many followers of Jesus Christ in the church. And I'm so glad I don't know anybody in here. So I can just say this with no pretense. Who love Jesus but are not willing to participate in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. They would never use the words below them. And they would never say out loud that they have no time for the church. Or that it isn't a priority. But by the way that we live, that's often what we communicate. And the Lord is calling to all of his followers to humbly evaluate ourselves and understand that we are no more than God says we are, but we are also no less than what God says we are. And he wants us then, because of the mercy and because of the grace that he's given to us, to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to him. Now Paul goes on from here. And as he writes in verse 4 and 5, he then goes into verses 6, 7, and 8 where he begins to unpack some of the actual, you know, hands and feet things that followers of Jesus Christ do. And I'll just be honest with you, you could go to 1 Corinthians 12 and get a much longer list. There's only seven here that we're just going to fly through tonight too, okay? So don't be worried that we're going to be here all night. But you, you could go to other places and find more. But what Paul is getting at is this is that God has called his people to cooperate with one another. And so you can write this down. This is our last point tonight. God's grace leads me to helpful cooperation. He wants us then, if you look in verses 4 through 5, as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. We're not all the same. God gives individually. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if, serving in our, in our, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
So if you understand the mercy and the grace that God has given to you, and you understand as a follower of Jesus Christ that he has given you then spiritual ability, supernatural spiritual ability to participate in the body of Christ, then you've got to use that. Those have to be things that are working out in our lives. When we fail to use the gifts that God has given us, I love that there's this illustration that we're a body. So if, if we all are members of the body and someone's not doing their part, the body isn't functioning correctly. If one of the legs isn't working right, the body's going to limp along. If one of the arms isn't doing its part, if the ears or the eyes aren't doing their part, the body is going to have difficulty, right? We all understand that? And so Paul then, he says, so, so if you have some of these gifts, you need to use them. Let's just go through them really quick. The first one there in verse 6 is prophecy. This is not like in the Old Testament, which was a, a fresh word from God. In the New Testament, we see this is all about uh, imp- in, interpreting divine truth to God's people. This is essentially what I'm doing right now, just helping you see what does God's word say. Now, we are wrong when it comes to that gift or any other gift to elevate it over any other gift. All of these are useful and part of building up of the body of Christ. And so then he, the next one there, he says in verse 7, read with me, it says, if service in our serving. I love this, Paul. Thank you for being so articulate and specific. Not at all. That's so confusing, right? Hey, if you have the gift of serving, you should serve. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, what he means in his helpful vagueness is referring to anything you can do to help other people. Now, so often in the kingdom... And in God's, in God's kingdom, this has to do with people who are serving in ways that will never be seen. These are the internal body parts. Whenever I think of great servants of the Lord, there's a few groups of people that I think of, and, and you will have never met these people, but I will tell you about them. The one is my grandpa. My grandpa, he is with the Lord now, but this guy, he was blue collar through and through, although he always wore a white collar to church. But he was always willing to do whatever was needed to help the church. He was the kind of guy who, in the church that he went to, he would go at 11 o'clock at night and be there till sometime in the morning to fix the boiler so that the women's Bible study the next morning would have heat. This was the kind of guy who would do anything for you. He didn't want to public speak. He didn't want anyone to know he did it. He just wanted to serve. The church needs people like that. And that's some of you. You're like, I don't, I don't want anyone to put me into a place of leadership. I just want to be useful. Perfect. Be useful. In our church, our current building, it's different where we started when I started at the church, but our old building, we backed onto a high school, and we used to do this drop-in lunch, and we had this army of older saints who would come, and they would cook, and, and they never articulated the gospel to these kids, but they made an avenue for the gospel to go forward. There were these two ladies, they both had the same name, it was Joan, and they always made hot dogs. And I just think about how many hot dogs these two ladies boiled so that kids could hear about Jesus. And if you have the gift of serving, then brothers and sisters, you got to use it. Uh, Verse 7 there, it says, the gift of teaching. Now, teaching is, is similar to prophecy, but teaching is more about the personal application of the word of God to people's lives. So you can have the gift of teaching and never preach. Because you can teach and help God's word personally apply to people's lives. Maybe that's in a class, but maybe it's in a small group. Maybe it's in a one-on-one conversation where you know God's word and God is in continually increasing your knowledge of God's word and ability to help others with it. Verse 8, it says, um, 
if exhortation, in, then in, I keep wanting to say extorting, but that's the wrong word. In, in exhorting, it's, they're very close, all right? You've got to give lots of grace to the preacher, okay? Uh, your Bible translation might say encouraging. If you have the gift of encouragement, you use that gift. We, if, you know who these people are, these people with the gift of encouragement, right? These are these people who the love of Jesus is boiling up inside them so much that you just like, if you run into them at the grocery store, you are thrilled. If you, as soon as you get to church, you're like, man, I've had a tough week. I've got to go near that person because the love of Jesus is boiling over in their life and I just want to get splashed. And so we just draw in. So if that's you, don't hold it back. Let the love of Jesus come out and encourage others. Verse 8, it says, in, if you have the gift of contributing, to do so generously. One commentator wrote, this is the willful giving of treasure, talents, and time. You may have more than others of one of those. Treasure, talent, or time. But you are to give, Paul says, generously. Then he says also there in verse 8, he talks about leading. So many people are great leaders in their workplaces and just honestly not even using that gift in the church. If God has gifted you in some way to lead outside your church, my guess is he's also equipped you to lead inside your church. The difference is that biblical leadership is not our world's ambition to position kind of leadership. It's a humble serving and caring. And so we have to be intentional about doing that and doing it, if you notice there, it says to lead with zeal. And then the last one there, he says, is acts of mercy. Acts of mercy are just practical things that you can do to contribute to the betterment of other people. Now, this is just a list of seven things. Seven things that Paul gives. God has given gifts to all of his children. The question is, what will we do with them? And no one asked me to come preach this message to guilt you or to coerce you or to compel you into serving in this local church. But whether this is your local church or maybe you're visiting today like I am or maybe you're watching online because you can't get to your church tomorrow or something like that, God has called all his followers because of the mercy and because of the grace of God to act and live and function in a certain way. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and the server, they hate their job? I was in a restaurant recently, and it was like super obvious as soon as I sat down that this person does not want to be working tonight. And, you know, you sit there, and you're like, hey, we need another set of cutlery. It never comes. You're just like, I guess we'll use our hands. I just, they don't, please don't spit in my food. Like, I just, you do not want to serve right now, right? And it's it just, even if the food is good, it makes the whole experience at the restaurant, you're like, eh, I don't know if we'll go back there, right? Or what we're having a problem, I know in like the GTA right now, I don't know if you're having this in Ottawa right now, but since the pandemic, so many restaurants are short servers. You guys have that here? Where there's just like, there's just, there's jobs, but there's just not people to do those jobs. The same is true in the church, is that the Lord wants us not to just go to work, not to just come to serve, but come to serve with the right attitude. And he wants us to not, not neglect showing up. He wants us to come to participate. This passage destroys the notion and the idea that we can be committed followers of Jesus Christ and be inactive. You can't. Because God wants all of you all of the time. It's honestly tragic how many Christians hold back the spiritual gifting that God has given them and they refuse to use it. I heard a pastor say one time, you will have to give an answer for that. And when you stand before the Lord and he says, I have gifted you and I have equipped you in this way for your entire life, 
and you never used it, what are you going to say? There is no answer that will be wiser than why ever God made his decision to give you that gift. Well, God, I know you equipped me with this, but I was thinking, but you were thinking? Come now. His grace should lead us to cooperate in the body, to give our time, all of our time. Our relationship with God determines our relationship with God's people. If God doesn't save you, just have a part of you for some moment in the future, he saves all of you for all of the time, for all of his glory. And if you're here and you're hearing about the mercy and the grace of God, and you haven't been saved, then before you leave, please talk to somebody and pray with them and hear more about the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your kindness. God, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you, God, that you have, in your love for us, made a way for the wrath that we deserve to be held back, to be removed. And then you have gifted us grace. You have given us what we don't deserve in forgiveness and hope and peace in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself that your mercy and your grace would continue to lead us. It would be what motivates us and what drives us to live and to serve, not just sometimes, but all the time, for your glory. God, we can't do this. We can't make this happen on our own. We need you to do it. So I pray that that no one would leave here feeling guilted or coerced, but only feeling a greater love for you. But that love then would turn into obedience. That that love would be evident in our lives. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.